0: The Mac Observer's Mac Geek Gab, episode 608 for Sunday, June 5th,
1: 2016. Greetings, folks, and welcome to the Mac Observer's Mac Geek Gab. The show where you send in your questions, we answer your questions. We have a community of people that sends in all kinds of great tips. We share those tips. Also cool stuff found. The goal is for all of us, be included, to learn at least three new things each time we get together. And that, folks, is weekly. We have a couple of sponsors. Actually, we have three sponsors for this episode. One of them is brand new. Atlassian, the makers of Bitbucket, Jira, Confluence, and HipChat. We'll talk more about that uh, later. Atlassian, A-T-L-A-S-S-I-A-N.com. PDF Pen 8 from Smile at SmileSoftware.com slash Geek. Some very cool stuff, including digital signatures and audio notes. We'll talk more about that. And Casper at Casper.com slash MGG, where coupon code MGG saves you 50 bucks off of Frankly, the best mattress I've ever experienced, so we'll talk more about all three of those shortly here and here in Durham, New Hampshire, I'm Dave Hamilton and here in Fairfield, Connecticut, Jonathan Braun. Mr braun, are you having a raining rainy morning there in uh in fairfield
0: uh it's coming we have okay. a uh, actually we have a uh according to my uh weather widget here, which is weatherman light uh we have a uh, hazardous weather outlook. For later in the day, oh, which, uh, oh yeah, uh, heavy rain, uh, thunderstorms, and uh, possible flooding. Not as bad as Texas and our uh, one of our friends down there. Yeah, no, many of
1: our friends down there, in fact. Yeah, yeah. yeah. What did they do to deserve that? <laughs> um, yeah, it's been well. Yeah, and we had it here. You know, it, it's um, it's interesting that they, they had you know the worst flooding. In, on record, like two years in a row, and we had that here about I don't want to say nine, ten years ago. We had you know hundred year floods two years in a row that are supposed to only come once every hundred years. So I guess we just got it on the on the cusp in between, right? The uh, the hundred year gap uh, starts right uh, right between those two. It ha- it's you know, it's weather patterns. It's uh, I guess El Nino year, uh, which is what's affecting Texas this year. Um, so t- talk to me about this weatherman light thing, John, is it, it's a, a, a widget or it sits in your menu bar or it's both or, or what?
0: Uh, yeah, it's, it's uh, I think I got it from the app store. It's a yeah. free version. I think there's a, a paid version, but, okay. um, but yes, it sits in the, uh, yeah, it's in the menu bar. So, uh, so I have the, the choice I have here is it shows an icon. With the weather, so right now it shows a little cloud, and then it shows a little uh, triangular uh, warning sign, which means, oh, I have a uh, warning, you know, issued by NOAA, I believe. And, uh, yeah, so it's uh, huh. something I've been using for a while, because the, the last thing I used, they uh, stopped updating it, and it wasn't, uh, yeah, if you recall, actually, one of our uh, one of our listeners actually uh, wrote it, uh, or, or did a version of it. Cool. No, we'll, uh, we'll link to it. Yeah, I mean, Hey, the, the price is right, but it show you know, it's showing a, uh, you know, temperature, humidity, all the current conditions,
1: you know, you give it your it's cool. code and, uh, people in the reviews in the app store and there aren't many, but people either absolutely love it or absolutely hate it. So I guess it's one of those things that it either displays the information you want the way you want it, or it doesn't sort of like, uh, well, I don't know, lots of things in life, I suppose. So. The good news is, like you said, it's free and uh, you can test it. And if you don't like it, you can use something else. Uh, A reminder, I know you've all, uh, at least from what you've been telling us, you've been voting early and often. But I want to remind you, podcast awards voting goes for another week. So go to podcastawards.com, vote for your favorite shows Matt Geekab is listed there in the technology category so we would love to have you vote for us there you can vote once per day so do not forget please because uh, it's you know it's it's good to get recognition and you folks are helping us do that and we really appreciate it I think it's time we had uh, we had some good comments from last week's episode so let's see what uh, let's see what everett had to say if I can find it here
0: Hi John Hi Dave just wanted to let you know that in your most recent episode you had a person with Adam's mysterious ghost calls I'm thinking because there is no voicemail then it must be a FaceTime call so that might narrow it down a little bit because when you make a FaceTime call at the end of it it asks you would you like to send a voice message or would you like to end the call it does not let
1: you leave a voicemail in the traditional fashion. Anywho, hope that helps. Have a good one. Thanks, Everett. Yeah, you know that that is um, I, that's a good explanation because without it, automatically leaving a voicemail, well, you then wouldn't get one if it were a a uh, you know phantom call or ghost call or a butt dial or whatever you want to call it. So, yeah, good thinking, man. I like it. What do you think, John?
0: I think, uh, did, did you see, uh, our pal, Dr. Bob actually, uh, scripted, uh, something talking about how to deal with this. I'll take up the article. Okay. Was it, was it any good tip to share? Uh, I think the general tip was lock your phone.
1: Oh, <laughs> lock your phone before you put it in your pocket. Yeah. Okay. Right. That'll prevent, uh, all sorts of tragedies. It will. And, and it'll keep your battery, uh, from being burned down unnecessarily too. So yeah, cool. Um, Bill, I had a thought about uh, our discussion about watch the Apple watch and the updates last week. He said Dave's answer about deleting apps was correct, but incomplete. Yes, you can delete apps and also avoid installing them at all by turning off the automatic update. And yes, it's hard to know if a new app has a watch version, if auto install is off. So you might want to leave it on, but be aware that a new version of an existing app counts as a new app that will be automatically installed. So if you delete an app, it will reappear when the developer updates it as long as auto-update is enabled. There's no way to keep a clean slate. So basically, the choice is between neatness and app discovery. My approach has been to keep auto-update on, check the edges of the app screen screen occasionally for new ones, and use glances and complications to access the apps I use often. All the best. Thanks, Bill. Um, Yeah, that's... um, I, it, it you're highlighting exactly the problem. And thank you for the clarification, Bill. It's This is the issue with um, watch apps is you don't know when a new one has been put on your watch. I wish I could subscribe to a notification or just something to see. Oh, yeah. Whoa. I mean, I know when I download an app, it says this has an Apple watch app, which is great. But, you know, I'm not always thinking about let me go check the watch app immediately. And then I lose track of the fact that it has an Apple watch app. Yeah, we got to uh we got to figure that out. I, or Apple does. I mean, there's nothing for us to figure out, but Apple's got to figure it out. I don't, I don't I don't know. I uh I got nothing on this. Any thoughts on it, John? I don't have a watch, so I got nothing either. <laughs> yeah, there you go. All right, let's uh Tim has uh has a thought. He says, "I wanted to chime in about the photo stream discussion you guys had in episode 607." Uh I, I was talking about just as sort of to couch this, that on my iOS devices, I see that PhotoStream says it has a thousand photos in it, whereas on my Macs, it's always less than a thousand and always different on each Mac, uh, sometimes by a little, sometimes by a lot. Uh, Tim continues, while the Photo Stream issue described by Dave is certainly frustrating, I think it's actually expected behavior. I happily use iCloud photo library now, but I used to rely on photo stream to sync photos from my iOS devices to my Mac. From my experience, it's normal to see different numbers of photos in the photo stream folders on different devices. Photo stream stores and syncs photos for 30 days. I don't believe it syncs a thousand from a device to device. In other words, if you disable photo stream on a given device and then re enable it, I believe the device would only be able to pull down photo stream photos from the last 30 days. While the Mac can make permanent copies of PhotoStream photos in the local uh, Photos library, PhotoStream on iOS was designed to be temporary. Since I'm now using iCloud Photo Library, I can't test this behavior, but I do recall u- losing PhotoStream history on devices when enabling, disabling it uh, during troubleshooting. Frankly, I always thought that Stream implementation was confusing for users, and I think iCloud Photo Library has been a huge improvement. Here are some relevant uh, bits from the photo screen photo stream FAQ. And uh, we'll put a link to that in the show notes, but it, uh, it answers the question. How many photos can my photo stream store? And it says to save storage space, your iPhone, iPad and iPod touch. Keep your most recent thousand photo, 1000 photos in the, my photo stream album. And then uh, the second question, can I use my photo stream to back up my photos instead of iCloud backup or iTunes? And the answer is no, Photos in my photo stream are saved on the iCloud server for 30 days. So thanks, Tim. It's good to know that I don't just have a problem. Um, like you, I've, I've, I mean, I've found photo stream mostly helpful, but confusing. I do try to plug my phone into my Mac, uh, you know, every couple of weeks. And when I do that, I launch photos and I tell it to import everything that it does, that my Mac doesn't already have. And there's usually something there. Which tells me that photostream isn't quite doing what I want it to do, but you know it uh i guess it it you know it mostly works sort of kind of <sighs> yeah, kinda
0: of. exactly yeah, oh my solution, but what I do is uh, yeah, I don't rely on photo stream for long term storage, I use it pretty much so i can you know if I'm on a different device, I can see a photo that I recently took,
1: but uh yes. Yeah. And it usually works for that. And usually relatively quickly. Uh, there's been times, like if I'm doing an article or something and I need to uh, get a screenshot from iOS over, uh, sometimes PhotoStream does it really, really quickly to my Mac. And other times it's just simpler. It, it, the way I do it is because AirDrop is always sort of finicky as well. I, um, I message the, the photo to myself. I don't know if you realize this, but you can use iMessage to send messages to yourself. And that's a really handy way of getting stuff around. I, I'll be honest. I, I didn't even think about doing this until I saw my daughter doing it. And she's like, oh yeah, I do it all the time. It's just like, it's a great way to just save things or, or whatever. And it's like, oh yeah. And it works. So I can, I message it to myself and then it instantly appears obviously on, on all my devices, including my Mac, which is enabled that way. It's good stuff. Messaging yourself.
0: That's crazy talk.
1: I, it does seem like crazy talk. Yeah. No, I get it.
0: And uh, to wrap up, though, what, what I do to archive my photos is I use Dropbox's uh, camera roll functionality. Mm. Whenever I plug into my computer, it uh, basically scans the phone and says, "Up oh, here's some new photos. Let me. Uh, I'm going to store them in your Dropbox camera roll for you." Um,
1: yeah, yeah, yeah. All right. Um, I, I the two things. Number one, Alex in the chat room says that uh, AirDrop. Works well for him and AirDrop. Actually, when I have Wi-Fi on on my iMac in the office, it works fine. My problem is I can't AirDrop, and I know there's the hack to make it kind of sort of work over Ethernet, uh, but that I haven't had good experience with that. So uh, I have to turn on Wi-Fi in order to get AirDrop to work. The problem with that is there's no way on the Mac to turn on the Wi-Fi chip without a radio, I should say without um, it automatically attaching to a base station. Right. And I don't want to have two network connections to my network. And I know the Mac deals with it fine and I've done it and, and I've had it on for days and haven't really had a problem, but just because I'm kind of a geek and don't like to have to deal with, you know, inefficiencies in networks and all of that, I don't like to have two connections to the network. And so that's, that's why I, um, I tend not to leave Wi Fi on. And for those of you that that um that don't know, the way Airdrop works, it does not use your um your Wi-Fi base stations to communicate. It it talks directly between the two devices. So you do not need to be attached to uh, a network in order for airdrop to work. You just need to have Wi-Fi turned on. So Terry is asking, uh photos or photos that are messaged lower resolution than the originals with screenshots. I have not found that to be the case, Uh, but you may be right about that, Terry. So, um, but I, but with screenshots, it hasn't been an issue for me. I get, you know, full retina size screenshots, which are of course, notably smaller than pictures. So you might be, you might be right. All right. Um, you know, while we're on this subject, John, uh, Anthony had a question this week that, that sort of triggered something back and forth between you and I. A bit of a what I would call a, a holy grail thing for us. And the question really was. How can I create my own personal photo cloud? Right. We have all of these devices. Uh, specifically, he was asking about the Synology how can I create my own photo cloud? And, and sort of as a second add on to that, that we hear from lots of folks is how can I create my own photo cloud and still use photos on my Mac as my main library? So this gets interesting. Um, and, and John, you and I did actually a bunch of experimenting this week and, and found a couple of things uh, where it gets interesting is if you want to continue using photos, Obviously the, the simple solution is just pay the money and store your photos on Apple server and, you know, buy enough storage so that your iCloud photo library can just live there. And, and, and then that seems to work really, really really well for folks, but that doesn't always make sense, right? If you've already got something like a Synology or or really anything, I mean, there's, there's, there's other photo. Uh, library solutions out there for for many different things. How can you create this on your own? And more specifically, how can you get it to read from your photos library? So uh, we experimented this week with Photo Station on uh, on the Synology, which is an an interesting piece of software. It is not built to deal with a photos library, though. So uh, I did some digging, and what I found was if you And and we'll sort of save the whether or not you should store your photos library on a NAS uh, question for for like the second half of this. But um, if you have either the original or at least a copy of your photos library on your NAS, you don't want to point your photo station or whatever, you know, photo cloud package you've got at the top level of your photos library on your Mac, your photos library just looks like a single file, but really it's a package, which means it's a series of folders. So if you sync it over to your NAS, your NAS is going to see it as it is as a series of folders. One level deep in your photos library is a folder called masters. That's the one that you can point your, uh, your photo cloud solution to. And I, and I did this on my Synology. I pointed a photo station to the masters folder of a test photo library I created, but it, it worked fine. And you can, the cool part is with PhotoStation is you can set up multiple libraries and you can have them all sort of aggregate together and each library can have different permissions. So I set the permissions on my photos library to be read only. And this way I'm not having PhotoStation write anything to it and start confusing things but I still have access to it via the DS photos app on my phone whenever I want. And it'll do, it'll actually do some really cool things. It, it scours the library. It creates thumbnails of its own outside of the, the library. It, um, it'll do some facial recognition. It's a pretty, it's a pretty complete package. And then I also do uh, my phone. I have my phone backup to it. Now I created a second library that I call my, you know, Dave's iPhone backup and that one, I gave myself right access to, and then I'm able to, you know, it automatically will back up my photos from my, uh, from my phone to that. And I've got them stored there and it notices duplicates. So when it gets those photos from the, the library, it's not going to show them to me twice in smart albums or anything. It's pretty cool. Um, what, what do you, what, you, you've messed with uh photo station as well this week, John, I'm, I'm curious as to your thoughts.
0: So what I did, and actually I think I know the answer to this question here. So what I did, so one, you know, first you and I were discussing, well, can you put a photos library on a NAS? And as far as I can tell, or at least I was successful.
1: I was too. It was weird. I had a problem with my disk station. I mentioned it actually during the spot that we mentioned uh, for Power Photos last week, and I anytime I tried to access a photos library there, I would basically lose access to my entire NAS as a file server from that computer until I rebooted that computer and then everything was fine. And after you said you were able to use your photos library on your NAS, I thought, okay, well this is what, you know, what's different. I thought, well, let me reboot my NAS and sure enough, uh, everything works fine now, but I don't, I'm torn on this right on, on the one hand, the, your access to your your NAS and the speed that you would get from your, your NAS would give you faster access to your data than you would get with a locally attached drive, unless you, it was like a, you know, a locally attached, really high-performance SSD. I am regularly able to soak up a gigabit Ethernet pipe getting data to and from my NAS. So um, in that sense, I feel like, you know, the NAS is a better place for... A photos library, and then you have the redundancy and and all of that. There are a couple of things that Apple does in Photos, and and more so in iPhoto. I feel like the Photos library is a little more robust or or less finicky in this regard. But there were some there were some specific things that they did with, with hard links and aliases or soft links um, or symbolic links, I should say, that would occasionally get corrupted. I also have been unable to upgrade any library that exists on the NAS. So if you're going certainly from iPhoto to Photos, but even Photos Yosemite to Photos El Capitan, uh, both of those operations had to happen locally. I I could not get them to happen on what with the Photos library on the NAS. Yeah. So, But once it's migrated... I, I've had no problems once it's migrated until Likewise. I need to until I need to come back. And that's a lot of data to move around, right? I mean you're talking about for for you know our family photo library, it's many hundreds of gigabytes. So now that I've moved that off the NAS to do the upgrade that I mentioned for Lisa last week, um I, I'm I'm hesitant to put it back on there, but what I am doing is I'm carbon copy clonering is that the right verb, I guess, uh, I'm carbon copy, clonering the library. Um, right now I've got it doing it every day, which is too obsessive. Uh, it's too much data to parse through every day, but I'll have it do it once a week over to the NAS so that the, the data is there. And, uh, and then it's backed up and you know, all of that and accessible to photo station. So, so that's my feeling on it. it. It works and we've been using it for years on the NAS, but every time we have to do something to it, I go through this panic moment of, okay, how am I going to get it off of there reliably without losing data? And it's always a little, eh, you know, it's a little right. something, something.
0: So as you, uh, so to your question, what I did was not quite what you did. Well, I decided to just, you know what? I'm going to copy my photos library, the the whole file. I'm going to copy it to the photo folder on the Synology. And that's normally where any of their photo apps will start looking. Um, What happens with that, though, is as you pointed out, Dave, the Photos Library is not actually a file. It's a package, and within it is a bunch of folders. And you, of course, pointed out that the Masters folder is the one that you want. Now, in my case, what happened is that I see an album called Photoslibrary photo library and then within That's it right. yeah. if i open it it shows all the enclosed folders a lot of them have stuff that photo station doesn't know what to do with but if you open the masters folder then it'll start actually it's sorted by year or at least in uh, yeah. for, for my setup it's sorted by year so i yeah. see 2011 2012 2013 and then you know breaks it down by year by month and all that um, so that was my experience now uh, and i think you mentioned to me that if i uh, probably the right thing to do would be when you um, for it to, to not show all the folders. I think what you said is that on the Synology, you want to go to, I think index in the control panel, indexing service, media
1: indexing. Um, Well, yeah, no, I, I mean, yes, but, but no. So photo station is weird. Um, the only thing photo station on the Synology reads is whatever is in your slash photos directory on your Mac, which is weird. Like it what it what it adds to its albums. So you have to do symbolic links on your Synology to any other libraries that you create. If you want it to auto import them. Um Okay. Yeah, it's just it and it even says that. Like if you go in uh, if you go to Control Panel on your Synology indexing service, uh, under Media Indexing, it says: Please note that the only image files, only the image files under the shared photo, shared folder slash photo, will be added to Photo Station after being indexed. So you can you you can and should add the library manually, but then you have to also do this symbolic link so that it automatically sees it. It's it's sort of that's the one bizarre part about this. I'm not sure why.
0: Yeah. So I think. So what I did is not the correct approach to share your photos library using photo station, probably a better solution. And, and I found this because I actually um, didn't have it installed. So yeah. I installed it, you know, for our listeners and, and for me, mm. uh, one thing that was interesting is that apparently it's written in PHP because when I tried to install photo station, it's like, um, yeah, uh, I need to install PHP. Yeah. so I'm going to, I'm going to, make a leap here and say that PhotoStation is a written PHP.
1: <laughs> well, it, it, from what I understand, PhotoStation was a third party app that Synology acquired uh, and, and put into as a, you know, as a native package into, into their disk station manager, but it's not written by Synology. Many of the, many of the other native package were packages were written in house. PhotoStation was not, which is part of what makes it, not quite an equal citizen. Um, and, and as you said, it's running PHP. So, yeah. Yeah. The
0: one thing that they do offer, which will make your life easier um, if you want to use Photo Station, is that they have a Mac app. It looks uh, a wee bit dated, um, but it's called, I think it's called Photo Station uh, Uploader or something similar. Okay. Which you can download from, uh, from Synology. Ah, it's called Synology Photo Station Uploader. (laughs) Ta-da! So maybe this is a better way to do it. Uh, I would say, yes. So what it does, it lets you create profiles, um, and it lets you do some other things. But if you create a profile and then you double-click on it, it'll launch their app and say, okay, um, can you give me the source folder of whatever you want to send to the Mm. photo station? And the destination folder is hard-coded as photo. Right. Right on the disk station, and then it has a few uh, checkboxes here upload supported files, skip files that have been uploaded that's kind of nice uh-huh. uh, rename files with taken time, which if you uh, I have that unchecked, otherwise it'll use the name of the photo and then keep the folder structure when uploading and the last choice is if a folder already exists, rename uh, sure again, it looks like a dated app here um, okay but uh th- that's that's probably the best way for you to uh. To, to interact with photo station from your Mac and uh, a, from what I see. There's also a windows program.
1: Yeah. So you'd so. point, you'd point that at the master's folder of your photos library and then let it kind of just do its thing from there. Is that, that right? That uh,
0: if I had thought about doing that, yes.
1: Okay. Yeah. Well, no, that's why <laughs> that we're talking been about the correct this stuff. Approach. Yeah. That yeah, would have yeah.
0: been the, the correct approach. So I, because now I have, you know, all this, cruft that's in the package as well that shows up in Photo Station, which right. I just blasted the library over. Right, yeah, like you said. I mean, it, I, I did it over Wi-Fi, and I think it took like two and a half hours because, like you, I have a huge library. It's like a hundred gigs. Uh, oh or yeah, so, and yeah. Over Wi-Fi. I mean, it, it. It. What I did works, but it's it's inelegant. So uh, yeah. Well, so if I had to do it again, or if I if I want to use Photo Station, I, I don't know if I'm really committed to it at this point. I, I use other tools. But,
1: right. Um, right. I like the whole private cloud idea. I mean, I, you know, I have this, this, you know, and this is people who have been listening to this show since the inception know that this has been one of those things for me that sort of drove me crazy for a while. It's like, well, we have all these boxes that, that store things. Why are they not doing smart stuff for us? They're network connected boxes that store things. They have a CPU in them. They run Linux. They all do, you know, what, what can we have them do And so this is part of it. It's like, why I, 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 as I said at the beginning of the discussion, if you don't want the headache, simply pay Apple instead of paying for one of these other boxes, or perhaps in addition to paying for one of these other boxes, but simply pay Apple for storage of your photos and it'll all happen magically and everything's cool. But if you want to do this, which I sort of do because it's like, Hey, I already have this box. I'm a geek. I'm willing to inherit some problems you know, um, and, and I, and it's fun, right. Sorting this stuff out. So yeah, cool. All right. Well, we'll, we'll keep talking about this. I'm curious if any of you have used anything else to create your own, you know, photo cloud. And it, it could be as simple as, you know, as John said earlier, Dropbox, it could be something like a, a, you know, a package like own cloud. I think they've got a photos thing in there and own cloud. If you don't know about own cloud, This is a cool thing. It's an open source. I believe it's open source and it's free engine to host your own stuff. And it's all kinds of stuff. I mean, including like calendars and contacts. I mean, all these servers just sort of wrapped into, into one and, and it's for creating your own personal cloud. That's internet accessible. The, it it can be installed on a Mac. The last time I looked, there was some problem and it might've been like a sandboxing related thing that wasn't letting it happen, but it looked like they were working on that. Uh, so it could be own cloud. It could be Dropbox. It could be anything. I'm just, I'm just curious if anyone has rolled their own, um, you know, photo cloud ish thing, because it's interesting uh, to me. And, and it, it seems mm-hmm. to be interesting to you. We we get a lot of questions about this. So, uh, so I'm curious to share the hard and mind route my history
0: of using my computer and the internet and the cloud to manage my photos. The yeah. only thing is the, the only nice thing about using your Synology and and the solution it offers is that you've already paid for it. That's um, the thing, right? You may have to pay for bandwidth depending on who you're using for, you know, well, and uh, to access th- the internet. But, but that's but,
1: the thing is you you're paying for bandwidth more so I think with Apple's, iCloud photo library, because you have to upload all of your photos f- to the library. Whereas here, you know, if I'm managing my photos in the house, uh, the bandwidth is happening locally. The only time I'm using bandwidth is if I want to access my photos from remote or do a backup remotely or, you know, something like that. Right. My,
0: yeah. uh, my only caution, um, or my only concern with you know having someone else do it, uh, number one is that you typically have to pay them. But right. my reflection is that throughout my career, Dave, I've had two of these cloud services that offered some sort of photo sharing, uh, basically say, okay, stop being a cheapskate. We're going to, we want to charge you now. And those two were SugarSync and BitCasa, both of which, as far as you I mean can tell, they're SuperSync
1: still- You mean SuperSync or SugarSync? Oh, SuperSync, something different. No. Sorry, you're right.
0: SugarSync, you're right. S- SugarSync, uh, was the last one I recall where I had a free plan with them and all of a sudden they said, well, go away. Um,
1: Right. No, I remember that. Yeah, yeah, yeah.
0: And I'm like, okay, bye. Yeah, bye. BitCasa just did did that too. And they both offered some level of, you know, if you stored your photos, they would provide some sort of interface. Um, That's the only bummer with these free
1: services is that when they stop being free, um, It's, it's, it's (laughs) it's clear that that, that there is no business model in hosting photos for free in that way. I mean, Flickr, Yahoo slash Flickr is doing it, but a they just stopped the whole Flickr uploader thing from Mac for free accounts, and they're also trying to sell the company. So you know, the, the these the, this clearly not a sustainable thing, and it's why Apple charges for this stuff. I I do I do not. Uh, fault Apple for doing this. Like I said, it's just oh, no. m- more like you just said, it's, you know, th- we've got these boxes. Let's use them. So.
0: And I've had some, now the, the, the most recent one on my radar, and then I think we should move on is, um, uh, Microsoft. Mm. So I use their cloud as well, which is OneDrive, And they recently had, uh, a little while ago, a special saying, Hey, if you manage your photos with us, no doubt to, uh, you know, draw people into using their ecosystem. They're like, "We're going to give you 32 gigs." I'm like, "Awesome!" So I have 32 gigs with them. But then I got an email recently from them saying, uh, "Yeah, uh, by the way, cheapskates, uh, we're gonna we're gonna cut that down to five <laughs> soon." Yeah. yeah. So
1: um, yeah, no, oh, it's it, it's not sustainable by anyone. Yeah. Yeah, and the one that's been going the
0: longest that still you know gives me the. Uh, space that they originally gave me is, is Dropbox. And we love those guys, but even they well, yeah, at but, some point but, may say, um, we're going to have to ditch you free people. I hope they don't.
1: Well, I, really but, like I mean, a lot of the Dropbox doesn't offer that much storage though for free. For the, for the most part, they're a freemium service too. They're going to give you five gigs. You might have like 20 because we have this big listener base. And when Dropbox was a thing, Uh, When Mm -hmm. it was coming up, we, you know, we, we had referral codes and that helped and that, listen, it's, it's great. It it worked out for everybody. We all got a little bit of extra and you and I probably got more extra than, than, than most because we had more people sign up using our code, but there's a cap to that, right? I'm, I'm, I'm sure. In fact, I'm certain that I've had far more people than, than whatever earned me 20 gigs sign up using my code and they all got their code and that's or they all got their extra space and that's great. But Dropbox capped it and I think it's 20 right and then you could earn more doing other things and if you buy an Android phone you get like 50 gigs free sometimes for two years which I had for a little while not that I oh wow yeah 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 well you know so yeah I've got 25 gigs of Dropbox so I don't expect that to go away but that's also not enough for my photos library I'd need you know 10 times that so all right, uh, I want to talk about our sponsors John there's some there's some cool stuff here how's that work for you out to the end all right, our first sponsor today is a longtime sponsor, of Mac Geek that Smile Software with a brand new product, PDF Pen Version Eight. In case you don't know, PDF Pen is an awesome tool for editing PDFs. First of all, you get to break that whole scan, print, sign, fax cycle and do everything paperless. You can add text and graphics to a PDF and your signature can stay in a library right in there that uh, you can just drag in. You can also drag in your name if you've got other stuff that you're doing on a regular basis. You can make corrections to a PDF. Yes, you can actually edit the text that's right there in the PDF. You can redact sensitive information in a way that actually does it. PDF Pen 8 enhances that even more. Take those signatures. Now you can do it with actual digital signatures. You can now send and receive PDFs in a way that makes everybody comfortable. You can also export to Microsoft Word now without the need for internet access. It does it all within the app. You can access file attachments and you can make audio notes that you record in place. Very, very cool stuff. They've priced this in a great way. If you have a previous version of PDF pen... It's just 30 bucks to upgrade to PDF Pen 8. If you have a previous version of PDF Pen, it's just 50 bucks to upgrade to PDF Pen Pro. That's a great deal because it's a great way to get into the Pro product. With that, you can add forms that you create yourself on a PDF. You can create a portfolio to combine them all. You got to check this out. Go to smilesoftware.com/geek and uh, and check out PDF Pen 8. Demo it first, and then I'm certain you're going to buy it. It's one of those things I just can't live without. Smile seems to be able to do that. They make software I can't live without. you got to check it out, smilesoftware.com slash geek. Our thanks to Smile for sponsoring this episode. Our second sponsor today is Casper. Casper.com slash MGG, using coupon code MGG, is where you're going to go to save 50 bucks on arguably the best mattress you've ever experienced in your life. That's certainly true for me. I've said it on the show before a couple of years before Casper came on board, we needed a new mattress. So we went out, we researched everything. We found the discount place closest to us. We had to test the mattress by laying in the store because that's the previous way of doing it. And frankly, it's the way most people still do it. Not if you work with Casper though. And we tested it and we bought a mattress from one of these local places. That's actually an awesome mattress. Uh, We paid about 1400 bucks for a king-size mattress. The same quality mattress, arguably better quality from Casper. It's a more comfortable mattress that you get from Casper. The price is $950. bucks. you will remember back to the beginning of this spot where I said, you get 50 bucks off though. Go to casper.com slash MGG. Use coupon code MGG. Now you're paying 900 bucks, free shipping and you get to test it out at your house the way you normally sleep i.e. not in your clothes and for more than five minutes at a time. That's the right way to test a mattress. You've got a hundred nights from Casper to test out this mattress. If you don't like it, they'll come take it away for free. No cost to you whatsoever. This is the way it's supposed to be. And this isn't just any old mattress. Like I said, when I bought a mattress, I went and researched and I got the best one I could find. Well... Casper's the same way. It's the best one you can find. Like I said, I find it more comfortable than the one that I paid 50% more for. Check it out, casper.com slash MGG, coupon code MGG. Order yourself a mattress, try it out. Like I said, the most you're gonna pay using our coupon code, 900 bucks, that's for a king size. If you need a smaller bed because that's what works for you, it's less. Our thanks to Casper for sponsoring this episode. I'm super stoked to bring on our third sponsor for this episode, a new sponsor for Mac Geek Cab. It's Atlassian. That's A-T-L-A-S-S-I-A-N at Atlassian.com. Atlassian is super obsessed with uniting a team in a productive way. And they've got a ton of products. We're going to try and talk about four of them here today. So the first I want to talk about is Bitbucket. Bitbucket allows you to track all the changes that you make to your code. Even if you're just doing a project by yourself, it's good to know what changes you made and when so that you can say, oh, this bug was introduced. What did I do to cause that? But especially if you're working with a team, really helpful, in fact, mandatory to track your code. That's Bitbucket. Then there's Jira. I've used Bitbucket. I've used Jira. Jira, J-I-R-A, is a tool that allows you to track bugs, track feature requests, manage tasks project-wide. And you can link those to the code in Bitbuckets. So you can say, oh, I fixed this bug or added this feature. And they've got a great web interface to manage all of this. Really awesome stuff. Another tool, Confluence, where you can create and share content, organize all the results and bring the team up to speed. And one last one that I'm almost certain you've heard of, HipChat allows you instant messaging or video chat with your entire team or a member of your team from any device. You get in the feel for what Atlassian's about. It's teamwork. Atlassian is so focused on teamwork that their stock ticker symbol is T-E-A-M. If that's not a commitment to teamwork, I don't know what is. You got to check this out. Go to Atlassian.com, check out what they're up to, start using one of their tools. Even if you're using other stuff, Atlassian will link with just about anything that's out there. They understand that being in a walled garden with all these silos is not helpful. They link with all kinds of stuff from other vendors. Check it out. Atlassian.com. Our thanks to Atlassian for sponsoring this episode. All right, John, it's time for some, uh, well, it's time for Sean because Sean says, my wife recently changed her iPhone pin code and forgot it the next morning. Luckily, she still has access to the phone with her fingerprint with touch ID. However, should the phone turn off or reboot, she will be required to put in her forgotten code Sadly, she had not made any backups of her phone on her Mac. I guess you could say she got caught. She probably should listen to this podcast with me. Well, I'll leave that up to you. Uh, Her iCloud backups continue to fail, even though she is only trying to save her contacts and has 4.8 gigabytes of available space. Trying to delete the current backup fails as well. This is a sort of known thing we've run into. He says, doing some problem solving, I've managed to get her data off of her phone to my computer using iMazing. Here's my question. If I restore from an iMazing backup, will I still need to enter the forgotten pin code? And if so, alternatively, if I need to reset to factory, can I add the data back to her phone piecemeal style from the iMazing backup, i.e. just selecting photos, notes, contacts? Will we be forever grateful or we will be forever grateful if you could shed some light on this? So first of all, uh, this is a great little sort of tip. If you forget your password, you still have some access to your, uh, device. Now it's not just if her phone turns off that she will need to type the code. There's also new rules about, uh, this in one of the latest, one of the iOS 9.x updates where if, if you've got it going, uh, for too long, I think if, it, if you, if it's been not, hasn't been unlocked for like eight hours, you've got to type mm. in your passcode again. Right. So, um, yeah, it, it's, uh, so, so there's that, however, uh, your amazing backup is going to, to work, uh, even if you restore the whole thing, no, you don't have to enter the passcode. Uh, you, you might, if you saved the backup with its own password, which would be different from your passcode on the device. But if you, if you encrypted the backup, then you will need to know the password for the encrypted backup. But that's something that you would know because you just did the backup. With iMazing, you can restore the whole thing or, as you pointed out, you can restore piecemeal, uh, which is just a cool feature of iMazing and and something, obviously, you can't do with iTunes. Really handy to be able to just restore a piece of data without wiping anything else on your phone. But, uh, but yeah, you should be fine, but I would do that ASAP because the the time will come when your phone or her phone just decides, hey, man, you know, it's time. You got to type in your passcode and then it's over. Right, John?
0: On the one hand, I'd say awesome that you chose a passcode that's so complex that you forgot what it is. On the other hand, it's not great if you want to get back into your phone. Right. Right. Yeah. Uh, I still personally still use the four digit, which some, some people would shake their fist at me. You can, uh, as some may know, but if you don't, you can make one that is longer than that. And that may or may not be a it. Well, it's up to you. The longer the better. Uh, People typically uh, recognize with uh, passwords or pins or whatever, right?
1: Yeah, and um, the uh, the thing is, I don't use a four or a six digit passcode, pin code, whatever. uh, Really? Yes, Uh, I do a custom length passcode, and uh, and you can do that when you go into uh you know into settings and you can go to passcode options and you can do a four digit numeric code you can do a custom numeric code uh or a custom alphanumeric and so my custom numeric code is not four or six because those are obvious options and i don't want obvious options i want something that's maybe a little harder to guess
0: So there oh, you go. Yeah. Look at that. I'm on the change screen. Yeah. Custom alphanumeric, mm-hmm. custom numeric or four digit numeric. Huh. Maybe I should uh, change that. I just got to think of something clever.
1: I won't forget. That's, that's <laughs> the key. Yeah. 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 So, so yeah, that's, um, it, you know, it's something right. I don't know. Wow. It's, um, I yeah, it's tough. It, you know, I always say we live, we live, we choose our place on the continuum that uh, that exists between being uber secure and being uh, uber open, right? We could we could all live in homes that had nothing but brick walls. Uh, we choose not to because maybe we want to put a door in so that we can go in or out of our home, and, and maybe we want to put a window or two in, so that or more, so that we can see in or out of our home. But as soon as we do something for us, well, we're doing that for other people, right? And so it all comes down to the keys, and part of it. Is security by obscurity, um, which works right up until someone knows that they want your data and then that doesn't work anymore. And that's what you need to protect against is, you know, deciding where on that continuum you're comfortable living, Uh, you know. And, you know,
0: actually what helped me with that, not to go on a tangent. Well, maybe a little bit, but uh, what helped me with this, Dave, was one, using a password manager. I'm a LastPass sure. type of guy. I think you're a 1Password type of guy. They're both fine products. Um, LastPass, at some point, introduced the thing saying, you know what, let me, uh, let me show you how many of your passwords are the same. And uh, uh-huh. for a while, I would do this. Yeah, or they're like, let me show you the passwords that you have that are similar or the same. And it gives you a, a security rating. And I looked and I'm like, wow, I had way more passwords that were a bit too similar than I thought. So yeah. let me, and, and it'll then put you through a mode where you can start changing them. And then it'll, you know, again, give you a percentage score saying, you know, how good of a security implementation you have. So, um, that was something to whip by. And, and I think one password has something similar, right? Like yeah. A security audit. They thing. do.
1: Yeah. 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 Okay. Yeah. I, I don't like to look at that because it, Tells me I have all this work to do. (laughs) Yeah. So that's, that's security by, um, by, uh, by, by, I guess that's the ostrich uh, method, right? And it's like, okay, you're going to tell me something. So I'm going to put my head in the sand for a minute and then, and then we're good. So, yeah, but yeah, it's cool. The way that it can attempt to auto change passwords. Alex is pointing that out in the, in the, in the chat room. at geekup.com slash stream. Ah, yes. But the other thing it helped me do
0: was that for a lot of sites, they use your email address. And the thing is, there's an email address that I wanted to uh, start moving away from. And that was another thing where it was very good to help me do that. I basically searched and it's like, yeah, here are all the sites where your username is your email. Um, maybe you should change that. And pretty much, there's only one site where it's still it, it won't let me change it. Although yeah. it'll let me change the email address that it'll send notifications to, but my account is like hard-coded to that email address but like i said it's not the end of the world because uh, in my profile i can put a different email address for
1: ongoing communications right yeah. right right yeah 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 oh uh, yeah i like this yeah yeah it's good stuff it it these password managers i you know i've i've mentioned not only do i use one password but i also use um iCloud keychain and and they actually work very well together and the nice part is when I'm on my iOS device, not only does it just have my passwords right in my browser without having to use the, you know, the little plug-in and, and it's sort of, you know, an extra four steps, but if I change a password, it remembers it without me having to go through the extra four steps. It'll just say, "Hey, this is a new password for you. Should I update your iCloud keychain?" and I say, "Yeah." And then when I go to log into that site on my Mac, one password sees that i'm logging in with a different password because iCloud keychain populates it and says hey do you want me to update to match this so it's almost automatic that the two sort of you know manage to keep each other up to date without me having to do anything and uh, and it's really handy i i I've, I've been very happy i kind of started doing it As a stopgap measure to make sure that, you know, I didn't miss anything. And uh, it's been this way for years and it works really, really well, despite it sounding very kludgy and clunky. It's not, it's a pretty smooth experience. And then the nice part is, even though I'm primarily using iCloud keychain as my sort of main password system, if I have a website where there's multiple things to log into, one password is much better at, uh, you know, just their UI for choosing the other passwords for to me is much better and it's also much better if i need to look up a password uh, at some point you know either, either on my mac or especially on my ios device one passwords interface and the way you can search and see things and store extra data is just i mean it it's much better so i will i will happily pay for that to have that extra functionality and and then icloud keychain just sort of keeps it all smooth especially with my ios devices so i i highly recommend using icloud keychain mr uh, mr. John F Braun mm. what you have now do you have something against iCloud keychain other than just adding a layer of confusion that I that I just discussed? Apple has burned me in the past with their uh,
0: keychain solutions, so I'm wary
1: but but I mean and that's me too right same and that's why one of the reasons i I did not Uh, give up on one password initially. As I said, now it's a very smooth process for me, but, um, but initially it was like, yeah, I'm not going to store all my stuff there and then get burned again. But it, in terms of just the convenience factor of it, it's killer because it, especially on iOS, it's all just right there. Just pretty. The thing
0: is I did recently have to enable it, Dave, Yep. but I'm not enabling it for, for day to day use. So maybe I will. But the thing is I, uh, you and I were talking about HomeKit, and there was actually a utility that I downloaded on my phone to see if another device that I have, which I'll talk about at some point in the future, um, but it's it's going to have HomeKit compatibility. And when I ran this one app, it said, um, yeah, I'm going to need you to turn on iCloud keychain because right. I need it. Uh, and I think that's a HomeKit requirement for, for password management. I believe it. Yeah. So, um, other than that, I wouldn't have turned it on. So I have it turned on, on, on one device. Okay. Um, okay. Because HomeKit. Because of
1: HomeKit. Yeah. No, that makes sense. That makes sense.
0: Sadly, the device will not have HomeKit compatibility until sometime next year, but,
1: mm.
0: you know, we're going to some shows soon, so maybe I'll, I'll get something HomeKit or I'll, I'll set up what is it? HomeBridge. Yeah. Um, supposedly there's a, a plugin for the wink system that I have, which okay. I use to control yep. my light bulbs. So um, I, I may go through the effort of setting that up. There's a bit of effort. It's not just, yeah, you you don't just snap your fingers and install it. It's a, uh, it, it, no, but it home- compiling it or installing it. And then you got to configure the plugin and you got to get these passwords and UUIDs, and then all this home. homebridge
1: is cool. Um, I'm running it on my Synology and it's, It's, it's interesting. So, so, but you can run it on your Mac and it's arguably, arguably easy So I can install the package on, Oh, well, you can install it inside a Docker on Synology. That's the, that's the best way to do it is um, it Docker is, I mean, it's not unique to Synology. It's, it's a, um, it's a way of installing uh, containers. So it, it will have an entire OS. It's almost like a virtual environment, um, but not quite virtualized in the way that we would normally think of these things. But essentially that's what it is, is it, it, it creates a shell um, and then, and then you can have whatever OS running inside it that you want. And that OS can then run whatever app you want. So a lot of people are doing that with crash plan now, because it's easier to do it inside Docker than it is, um, you know, the other way in terms of keeping it updated and all of that. But um, so, yeah, you can put Homebridge. Uh, inside a, a Docker container on your Synology, but you can also run it on your Mac. And it, frankly, from what I hear, people have more success just running it straight on, on a Mac that's, you know, always on. But um, but essentially what HomeBridge does, we've talked about it before, but what it does is it um, creates a, uh, a, a pipe to, or bridge, hence the name, between HomeKit, aka, you know, Siri control, and all of your non HomeKit devices, and it's like like John was saying, it's got plugins available for all kinds of things, and you have to know what you're going to use. And like John said, you've got, you know, sometimes the configuration files need to be a little bit, uh, uh, you know, pedantically built, but uh, but once you get it built, it's cool, and then you can use any HomeKit app you want. I, I like the Elgato Eve app, and you don't need to have any Eve hardware to use it, and it works really really well. Uh, when Homebridge is running, and that's my only problem, is I, with the, the way I had it in the Docker at first, it was like, it was a little bit of a headache just to keep it running. I, and I don't know why, but again, that's why people that run it on their Macs don't have that problem. So yeah, Homebridge is cool. It's, um, cause it's the, it's, it, it it's that bridge between all these, you know, quote unquote smart home devices that you might have that don't have HomeKit support. So you can't use them with HomeKit. And now you can, and that includes like Sonos and uh, all kinds of things. My, my Harmony remote for the TV, none of those things are HomeKit compatible. And yet Homebridge has plugins and they just work. It's cool. So I can say, you know, dinner and a movie and, uh, and then it turns off the Sonos. It turns on the TV to the, you know, to the Apple TV and you could even have it dim your lights and whatever you want to do. It's, it's cool. I don't know sort of we'll get there. It's fun. Where are we going to go now, John? We've had, uh, we've had all kinds of great little tangents, but I, I like them. It's good. It's, um, mm. keeps things interesting. Uh, where are we here? We talked about that. I, you know, um, it, this is one of my favorite things this time of year to talk about. So I want to go to Bob, John, because, uh, This is we we always have a question like this. And every year there's more data. So. um, Bob writes, I recently moved into a new house that has a large shop building about 180 feet away. The shop has a metal roof and skeleton with wood siding. It's just past the range of the airport extreme five that is in my house. I'd plan to use Powerline Ethernet to provide network connectivity to the shop, but existing Enphase solar micro or solar panel microinverters already use that to communicate with the Internet. Since two Powerline Ethernet systems on one service feed may cause mutual interference, I have no LAN or Internet in my shop. What LAN slash Wi-Fi extension methods can you recommend? Is it not reasonable to install a hardwired? It is not reasonable to install a hardwired Ethernet connection to the shop as it would require trenching under an asphalt driveway. Uh, Have Wi-Fi extenders gotten good enough to work well in cases such as this? Do you think a higher powered Wi-Fi transmitter in my house might do the trick or will I need a microwave link or something else in entirety? All right. So I love these questions and every year they start to crop up right about this time. Um, as people in the, in the, you know, Northern hemisphere, uh, start thinking about, uh, you know, stuff that we can do outside to improve our lives. And then, you know, we batten down again for the winter. For those of you that haven't been in like new England, where John and I are in the summertime, it's construction everywhere because it's like, we got to get it done now because in the winter, we certainly don't want to be doing any constructing. So this is, this is right along those lines. Um, there's a couple of things. So first of all, I I have almost exactly this setup. I do have ethernet running uh, underground. It doesn't run through the driveway. It actually runs sort of around the edge of the driveway. But, um, but they, it, and it obviously that's great. But when I got these Eero to set up, uh, I set up the Eero and sure enough, it was able to get a connection to itself. So I put one unit in the office and I actually put one unit at the back of the office. So I clear on the other side of the office from that, which faces the house. Um, I put one there and then one in the house and they got a connection and it, it's a solid connection. So uh, it's certainly not the way Eero is built to be used, but uh, but it's solving the problem that Eero purports to solve, which is just don't have to think about it. Just put them in and it's been reliable and rock solid and it works for, you know, a week So it's, um, so it's good. Uh, it, it, it's good. That might be a solution for you or, um, you might want to do something else. And this is where it starts to get geeky, but fun. We just had risk recently had a listener tell us about the ubiquity networks, air fiber fives. Now these things are not cheap. You're You know, they're, they're about, uh, They're about a thousand bucks a piece, I think. And I don't think you need exactly this. And I'll, I'll tell you why your distance is a little shorter than what our listener is doing, but these ubiquity, uh, devices, he has two of them set up 3.2 miles apart. Yes. Miles one at his house, one at his friend's house line of sight. They aim them at each other. They sync up and they create a essentially a land bridge He's getting 1.2 gigabits per second throughput out of them. Let that sink in for a second. That's faster than the Ethernet line I have going between my house and my office. It's faster than any Ethernet line I have anywhere here, even going between two computers that are right next to each other. 1.2 gigabits, 3.2 miles. That's pretty good. Um, I'm not sure I'd want to be standing in between those things while they're operating. (laughs) That was my thought. You, uh... (laughs)
0: Yeah, I think it may get warm if you uh, if are <laughs> the path of that. Yeah,
1: but if you need to fry an egg, man, you know, just just pass right through. You're good to go. Uh, so so that is one option, and and you don't need obviously you don't need something that can go miles and miles. You don't need something that can go 1.2 gigabits per second either. You can find these things. It's all about an antenna and a uh, and and the right router. Now I have a cheap uncle. And he does this. He's, he has a similar scenario. I think I've mentioned him a couple of years in a row here because he's sort of the the, the perfect use case for, for this. He's got two houses in Maine and there's a road in between them. And we've talked about this. He might be able to, you know, schmooze the town council because his other brother is on the council to uh, let him dig up the road. But he's not interested in that because that would cost him more than the solution that he's done. He's running a pair of old, really old D-Link DWL 2200AP routers with their stock firmware and uh, WDS plus access point mode. He says, I chose those because they had the highest wireless power output and they were cheap. Most router- routers don't tell you the power. Well, the other thing that he doesn't mention, but sort of goes without saying, but needs to be said, is they also have external antenna connectors. He says, for the antennas, I don't recall the brand. He says, but I think it's the Radiolabs 2.4 gigahertz Backfire 1.4. He says, I've got a pair of those 15 dB gain passive dishes. They look like small metal garbage can lids. Again, these didn't cost very much. I chose 15 dB gain because higher gain is a tighter beam. That's harder to aim. I don't need that headache. Other people have used old satellite dishes picked up at the dump. He says, there must be instructions on the web. <laughs> so, and he's getting... I would say 20, 30 megabits per second, uh, out of those things. And these are old routers, um, that, you know, don't have all the latest stuff. So the right antenna, even with a cheap, cheap router, you could build a microwave dish setup kind of thing that reliably gets your data across the the real, the thing you need to worry about. My uncle's been through this too, because sometimes trees tend to grow between him and, and his, uh, between his two homes there. And uh, it's actually his home and his, his daughter's home. And the whole reason he's doing this is because he doesn't want to pay for internet service in both houses. You know? So like I said, he's, he's my cheap uncle. He's frugal. I don't want to say he's cheap. Um, he's actually a very generous guy. <laughs> he's done well for himself, but he's frugal and, it, and it's great. Uh, he uh, it, you know, occasionally he has to go and cut a tree down and so that that line of sight beam is intact because as soon as you break that line of sight, the connection is gone. It's not like the wifi we have in our homes where it's just broadcasting in a, you know, very widespread and it sort of bounces around things and it's all good. This is a, a beam. And if you break the beam, you do not get connection. So just something to bear in mind. Anyway, this is, uh, that's my thoughts on this stuff. Like I said, I love, I love this, even though I don't have to do it here. I just, I love it. And I love that one of our listeners, I think it was, uh, I think it was Everett actually who who had a comment earlier in the show is getting, one point two gigabits over three miles. It's crazy, man. Any thoughts, John? Well, yeah, but you said they're like a thousand bucks, right? Yeah, but you don't that need... money.
0: I'd expect to get some. <laughs> well,
1: you're some, right, uh, but it, the speed. fact that it's doable is is you know is is really kind of what I'm trying to convey. And you and ubiquity, it's good. the good news is ubiquity is. Um, more and more getting into the consumer space with stuff like this. So, and they do, they have things that are much less powerful and therefore much less expensive. So I think for a few hundred dollars, you could probably do what you need to do with stuff from ubiquity. Or like I said, Eero might just solve this problem without you even having to think about it. And that's even better. Um, It depends on, I I have no doubt that Eero would do it. The question is, would it be enough bandwidth for you? um, Because they're using, you know they're not using focused antennas but they are doing very smart things with beam forming and all of that between the the sort of back channel radios that happen on on the eero and it just solves the problem where you don't have to think about it so
0: yeah no it is cool because i've seen you know either microwave antennas or dishes mostly in commercial installations or yeah. at least I, I know that that's what they are though so, um you typically have to be a business or satellite dishes i've seen like you know like some of the gas stations around here, I guess they have a a fairly real time connection to their back end. Yeah. Satellite. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I don't know. Satellite is the uh, champ as far as speed is concerned though. I know. Well, certainly not latency. Yeah. Yeah. I know a few of our listeners. uh, Yeah. The, the, the ping (laughs) isn't, isn't
1: that great? No, it's like one second. So yeah, it's not good.
0: I've got to look at new and you know, I got to look at different antennas here. Cause that's, um, you know, it's all about the power and all about the antennas. Yeah. Uh, when you're talking, you know, RF throughput and, uh, I should look here on my TP link. I, I, I played around with, uh, putting different antennas on a, on a past base station. Yeah. And, uh, you know, depending on what you get, it couldn't, you know, if you get better gain and, you know, it's tuned properly, uh,
1: you get more, uh, more oomph. So. Yeah. But, but you're right. It, it's, it's not just about the antenna. It's about making sure the, the radio is tuned to the antenna properly. Um, otherwise you could actually make it worse. You know, it, you, you will for certain be able to change it. The question is, will you be changing it for the better? So, yeah, See, it, it's fun. I think it's cool. Um, we had uh, we actually had a request for this one, John, so I think we'll, we'll honor the request today since we're, we're, in, uh, we're in tangent mode anyway, but this one was on the list. We had a request to do a segment, and I feel like this is going to be an ongoing segment because I want your input on it too, that essentially is the expert's guide to getting help at the Genius Bar. And there's all the sort of general tips of, you know, make sure you back up your Mac before you go in and, you know, act polite because that's what you learned in kindergarten and all that good stuff and schedule an appointment. Then that's good advice. Don't get me wrong. And and we will still cover that. But I want to talk about the things that we geeks do when we go in there. Sometime these aren't things Apple would advise you to do. In fact, I'd love to hear from uh, and you, you can, as always, do so anonymously. Uh, but I'd love to hear from active or or even past geniuses about some of these things, and perhaps your other thoughts. Um, the first, so I'll, I'll start with a few of these, John, and then if if more come to mind from you, uh, chime in. And and obviously, you folks that uh, that are out there also doing this, please, please chime in, and we'll 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 share it because it's the hive mind that is Mac Keekeb. That's what we do. Um, before going in with a problem, I always try a full restore. This is true for Mac or iOS before going to the genius bar, because that will be one of their steps. And my goal in, in going in uh, is to shortcut to solution, right? I I don't want to have to let them do all the troubleshooting. And that's sort of the, that's sort of the gist of this is convincing them to skip some of their own troubleshooting steps to get to solution faster. They want to get to solution faster, but they have to do it in a way where they're comfortable with what's happened. And you can sort of massage this, but you have to do it in the right way. So I do a full restore before going in. And I test after that, because that's the first thing they're going to say is, well, it might be a software problem and they're not wrong. Oftentimes you go in and you're like, I know it's my graphics card, right? And like, okay, but we have to rule out a software problem. So I always do a full restore or I go in and am willing to tell them that I've done a full restore and I wait until we get to the point where they say, well, the next thing we have to do is a full restore. You know, after I explain the problem and we, we go through all that and I say, oh no, good news. I've already tried that. And if you've prepared the genius up to that point by showing them you're collected, focused, you know what you're doing, they will believe you. Now you may be lying to them. I'm. I'm. I. I am. I. I. I have done that. I've gone in. They've said full restore. I'm like, no, I've already done it. Oh, okay. And if they trust me at that point, then they'll skip to the next step. Now you got to be ready to be right about that because if you're wrong about it, now the genius isn't going to trust you at all. Rightly so. So you have to be careful when you play that card, especially if it's a card that you don't actually have in your deck. Um, the other thing. I do is I set up well let's do you have any oh, thoughts on, on that before we Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah well okay. I
0: want you to be clear. So with iOS, I think what you're saying by doing a restore is when you have your device plugged in, there's a restore button that'll restore it either to factory configuration or restore from a backup.
1: Well, it'll restore it to factory and we're talking about a button in iTunes, but yeah, there's a it'll restore it to factory configuration, and then when it comes back up it offers to restore it from a backup. Right. Uh, and you We're can be clear
0: on that now. Yeah. Okay. Now with a Mac though, I mean, there is, and maybe that's where you're, you're going with the Mac. There's no restore in iTunes. Um, oh no, you've got to well, do it. Well, there is the recovery part. That's exactly right. Okay. Which is a place you may want to go. When things go bad with your main Mac installation, Going into recovery, which you typically uh, achieve by holding down command R when you boot. And if everything is set up right, you should go into something called recovery and it'll let you run a few different things. Yeah. You know, disc first aid and, and some other things.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And I know no, we go through a lot of that often. I don't want to get too pedantic. Okay. I, I mean, pedantic the wrong word. I don't want to get too basic with, with this particular advice, but, but you're right. That's the way to do it. And, and to, to sort of finish that circle, You can, you can do that on the Mac to a different drive too, right? You you know, so you're not forced to wipe your drive or anything like that. Yeah. But you want to be, you, you definitely want to either have tested that or be really certain on your own that it is not necessary to test that way. But the only way to communicate that to the genius is to say, I've already tested that way. Um, That, that is the, and, and this really helps when you're on the phone because it can save you a ton of time and save them a ton of time. But again, Mm -hmm. you've got to know that you're right about this. The second thing that, that I do is, uh, I set up a a test account with admin privileges and test your problem with it beforehand, but also allow the genius to do that because if you go in and this is specific to the Mac, but if you go in and they launch into your normal user account and, uh, Make it, you know, start seeing all your crazy stuff loading. If, if you, if there's more than like two things in the menu bar, every genius I've encountered says you have too many things running in your menu bar. It's like, well, uh, that's not true. You know, maybe it's true for your personal preference, but there's nothing. There's no rule of the universe that says by having extra things in your menu bar, your Mac won't behave properly. It might not. But again, you've probably set up your Mac in a way that you're comfortable with the way that it works, and and these extra things aren't the problem. But it's good a to test that on your own by setting up a test user account, and b show that test user account to the genius to avoid that conversation altogether. That's that that that's been a handy thing for me. You you kind of want to you, you want to pave a path for the genius that avoids any questions or tests that you have already ruled out. Right. I think. Indeed. Yeah. Yeah. Um, you know, and I guess, I guess that's the sort of the gist behind this and I'd love to hear more tips about it, but you know, it's do your research and be ready to politely interrupt the genius's process by offering to make it more efficient for them. Right. Acknowledge your respect for the process but use your technical acumen and your social engineering skills to convince the genius that they can shortcut past a couple of steps uh, or just avoid them altogether. That's uh, I don't know. So I'd love to hear more about uh, if anybody has any, any good genius bar tips, this would be uh, it would be a great thing because at some point, all of us, it doesn't matter how good you are. Uh, sometimes the genius bar is what you need. And, and they're the right ones to solve or at least diagnose a problem for you. So, cause they have access to hardware that we don't typically have access to or can get much cheaper. You know, I'll point out when, what was it about a year and a half ago? I had that issue with my power supply. Well, turned out to be my graphics card, but they started with the power supply in my iMac. In fact, in the one that's right in front of me for them to replace the power supply, including all the labor to get in and out. And the part was $66 to get the part alone from, I think I fix it or really anywhere was more than that. It was like 75 bucks. So a lot of times, I mean, unless you want to dig into your iMac and don't get me wrong, that can be fun. But, uh, but if you're looking to do it the most economical way, a lot of times the genius part is that if your machine is, new enough to be serviced by the genius bar. And they, they do have a cutoff on that. So I don't know anything mm. else on this one, John,
0: uh, one that I went the So the last time I was at the genius bar, it was a battery problem. So mm-hmm. this may sound obvious, but make sure that the problem that you're having is reproducible. <laughs> There's well, nothing yeah. more embarrassing than saying, <laughs> well, no, the thing is, so what I had is when my phone reached 20%, it would power down. I'm like, so what I did is, number one, I made sure that this was consistently happening. And it was. And then number two, I powered it up to like 25% and then went to the Genius Bar and and I started depleting it. And right around my appointment time, I said, okay, watch this. And it happened. So yeah. that there was no denying because sometimes, um, right, tech support people, rightfully so in some cases, may not entirely trust your perception of
1: (laughs) Uh, no well they can't what happened we we have to in troubleshooting someone's scenario we have to assume that the customer is lying and i don't mean that in a malicious way (laughs) no it's just they they i mean usually the reason someone asks for help is they don't know the answer and i used to love it when somebody would call me on the phone and and you know say i need you to come out but i you know this is going to be really quick like are you seriously like you call me and you want me to do something. And now you're telling me exactly what the solution is that you called me to figure out, you know, <laughs> like, I, okay. I mean, I get it. They, they want it. They they don't want to have to burn up a lot of time, which means a lot of money. And I mean, I, I get where that comes from, but a lot of times people just don't know and, and that's okay. Mm-hmm. So yeah, no, that, that's, um, what you said there, you know, making sure you know how to re- reproduce the problem. And if it's something that takes several days, tell them that say, look, I know I'm going to le- need to leave my computer with you. Uh, let me show you a couple of things, but I doubt we'll see the problem crop up here. You know, it needs to be left on for a couple of days and and then you'll start to see this and this happen, mm-hmm. uh, you or, know, or yep, yeah.
0: Or another one. Yeah. So, so uh, giving an expectation of, yeah, like you said, it, it could be heat related, so it may take a couple of hours and sure it may not yeah. necess- In my case, it was easy enough for me to get it to the point where it would fail pretty much. I, I knew within five minutes that it would reproduce it. but a heat problem, uh, those another thing is maybe uh, take a video. We actually had someone who had a rather involved uh, booting issue, and they were like, "Well, I'm not quite sure how to you know, show you what's happening. I'm like, uh, take a video." when the machine's starting up. Oh, that's and a that good idea. Action, well, you know what the thing is? It actually helped us, Dave. So he's like, well, first, I, I don't. i uh, I'm having trouble burning in, booting in verbose mode. And It's like, well, no, well, try try this other way. And then he sent us a video. You know, it was like uh, several minutes long, but it, it had enough detail where we could see the various steps that it was taking during the boot process. And yep. actually pointed out, uh, you know, in this case, that basically you're... you're boot drive was trashed.
1: <laughs> yeah, right. Yeah, no, but that, that's right. Yeah.
0: No, so if you it, can video it or take a picture of it. Uh, it doesn't have to be, uh, sometimes you can't take a screenshot. It's impossible. So no, but take you take a picture, a picture of a movie.
1: Yeah, no, um, that's right. Especially if you're seeing something weird on the screen that is hard to describe accurately. A lot of times, especially if it's like a graphics issue or something, if a, if, if a technician who has seen this problem or lots of these problems many times before can simply see a picture of what you're experiencing, that can totally shortcut the process. They're like, Oh, I know what that means. You know, those artifacts on the screen mean this problem. Whereas, yeah, anyway. All right. Uh, this is good. Send in your stuff. One more thing, John, before we, uh, before we go here, there was an article and it was a mostly good article actually in nine to five Mac, Uh, This week about if you purchase your own cable modem, you'll save money, which is true. We've been talking about that recently here. And actually, I got another one I want to mention uh, that I've been testing. But um, but it also said that uh, you would get faster download speeds. And this was true for the reviewer because they were using a very old cable modem that didn't support the speeds that their provider was currently sending them. However, purchasing a new cable modem was not the only path to fixing that problem. If this reviewer had simply gone to his or her cable, it was a a him, a he, him, I think. So if he had gone to his cable company and asked them to replace the modem he was renting with an updated modem, they would happily have done so. And then he would have gotten all the speeds that he got with uh, this modem that he purchased. Uh, I just wanted to point that out because this article was kind of being shared in a way that made it seem like your cable company would offer you these speeds that they wouldn't necessarily then deliver to you because your modem was old. And the only solution was buying one, not just having them, you know, update your rental. They will update your rental modem pretty much anytime you walk in the store. So, uh, so just remember that if you're renting or like in your case, John, you're not renting it, you are, but you're forced to, in that there's, there's no, you would save no money if you stopped using their modem and, and returned it to them.
0: So right? Uh, optimum does not offer, uh, well, they'd be fine with me writing sure. my own, but the thing is. It's built in, you know, and it's funny because, you know, some people, when you were discussing this uh, in some venue, some people said, well, I don't pay a rental fee. Right. Like, for example, I don't. Well, I do, in a sense, the thing is it it makes, I I would get no advantage from buying my own modem because they give it to me. And and actually in the case of like with my parents' recent upgrade where they were being pestered by uh, Xfinity to upgrade, it worked. Oh, sure. Well, number one, they're paying, I assume, the same fee. But the thing Correct. is, they actually went from a DOCSIS 2 to a DOCSIS 3. So their speeds oh. went from like 30 down to
1: 90 down. Right. <laughs> right. Yeah. No, it. it I mean, right. It, it, but the cable company is not against you doing this. And, and again, they will help you. Um, but the, but that said, I still feel like if you were in the scenario where you are paying a modem rental fee, especially if you're on Comcast, you are now paying $10 a month. Um, you can say you can make that money back real fast uh for a with by buying your own modem usually in less than a year uh, especially if you're just buying a a regular modem and not a modem router combo kind of thing you'll you can get a really high quality modem for you know anywhere between 60 and and 90 bucks and you can do the math on how many months it takes to catch that up if you've uh, if you're paying 10 bucks a month what i do want to talk about is um Another modem that I've been testing, you know, my, uh, my house here is crazy uh, as you know, because we're always trying different things. Uh, But the goal is for the family not to notice that that's the, uh, that's the trick. And when they notice, then I know that something's not working. So the good news family didn't notice Uh, the Aeris 6,900, which is their uh, cable modem and Wi Fi router built together. And we've talked about a couple of these. If you need a new cable modem, And it's also time for a new Wi-Fi router. Uh, This can be a good way to go. Uh, It makes it so that you've got it all in one and your, you know, firmware updates actually come automatically from your cable company, which is interesting. Uh, So they're fully tested by the time you get them. It's a 1900, it's an AC 1900 router, which means that it's, uh, it's got, you know, full 802.11 AC speeds. And then also Uh, 2.4 gigahertz uh, with multi um, multi streams. It's got four ethernet ports on it. It does. The router is a fully capable AC 1900 router. It does beam forming. Uh, It's got all of it It supports IPV4 and IPV6. And it's got, um, you know, it's a DOCSIS three modem, 16 channels down that it will bond. Uh, So, and, and four up and the nice part is even if your cable stream even if say you only need an eight by four modem right we are eight channels down and four up to get the speeds that you need that's true of me here I only need an eight down because I I'm only getting you know 100 and well it's, it's rated at 150 so I get about 175 but it will Comcast will bond up to 20 channels down if you have them regardless of your service level doesn't mean that I get more speed provision to me because the modem gets a profile that says, Hey, this is how fast you're supposed to go. But having more streams bonded or more channels bonded means that if things get congested, I probably won't notice, or I will notice less because I'm not just limited to the number of channels that, uh, that I've got that, you know, that, that are needed for the bare minimum to get my, uh, to get my service. This thing's been great, uh, you know, and it's really, really simple to set up. And that's, that's one of the nice things about these combo modems is when you put them together, you know, when you, when you're doing it separately, you've got to sort out, you know, getting the, the modem and your router in sync with each other. And sometimes that means power cycling, the modem or this, when it's a combo, you don't have to worry about it. You just run it. And it's got, uh, it's got a couple of ethernet ports sorry, sorry it's got four ethernet ports on it it's got a couple of usb ports so that uh so that you can you know hang a printer off of it or a uh a storage device if you want so it's it and their and their ui is pretty good um i i you know i and which is which is the reason i wanted to test this uh because they're coming out with this product called RipCurrent. This is Eris. They're the company that's been making cable modems for a long time. They were in partnership with Motorola for a while. They make the Surfboard brand of cable modem. Uh, it's all back under the Aeris uh, label now. But uh, Aeris is coming out with this thing called RipCurrent, which is very similar to what Eero's doing, and so. I figured looking at the UI of this modem would sort of give us a peek into what RipCurrent's going to look like. And, uh, and I, think, I think we're going to be happy about it. RipCurrent uses, um, rip uses PowerLine to keep everything in sync, or it can. It, it kind of uses everything to keep everything in sync. So um, I'm looking forward to what they're doing with that, especially after looking at the UI of this. So keep your eye on Eris for, for what they're doing. It's, it's pretty interesting stuff, John. I think so anyway that's uh, you know I think that's enough right any questions about that modem John
0: enough is enough I think so yeah crazy no no questions I've recently dealt with similar yeah well the Xfinity I was able to you know log into it right
1: right and fiddle with it yeah 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 it's good stuff um oh can i do one thing john can i pimp something i'm really proud of uh my band fling we released a five song ep this week called bovine abduction uh, ep what's yeah, that cause, well it's because it's only five songs instead of say 10 which you would call an album so it's extended play is where the EP oh instead concept... of an lp correct long play versus extended play yeah so it's five songs it is now on Apple Music and Spotify. It, it, and, and you can buy it direct on CD Baby. You can stream it from our website at flingrocks.com. Uh, I'd love to know what you think of it. And you can stream it for free at flingrocks.com. But if you've got Apple Music or Spotify, you can stream it there. I'll put a link in the uh, show notes to all of those places. And, uh, and I'd love to hear what you think. We had a lot of fun. Uh, all the logic questions that have come up lately a lot of those have been driven or the, my experience with Logic has been driven by this recording process and especially the mastering process I learned so much about how to do that and actually found some great tools so I really want to but we'll talk more about that in a future episode so love to hear what you think what else do we got John you want to tell them something
0: I know what I'm going to tell them Dave feedback at macgeekab.com is where you would send an email if you have questions tips comments cool stuff bound. um or whatever else just want to say hi <laughs>
1: just want to say you hi. want to, you want
0: I to think he, hi i think I you know said feedback
1: at MacGeekGab.com, john
0: yeah well if you do want to say hi you
1: could send an email
0: to feedback at mac
1: that's what you said yeah you, know. you can find us uh on the phone 224-888-geek and john geek is 4335. That's right. And find us on Facebook. Great community over there. I say it almost every week. It's a great place to be. Go to uh, MacGeekab.com slash Facebook. That'll redirect you there. Great stuff. Great folks. Com- constantly growing. Constant interaction there. I-, I posted a really weird question at 1 a.m. the other day about uh, a listener slash friend who needed a video card advice for a really old Mac Pro. And within 20 minutes... I had like not only an answer, but great answers that totally helped send this guy in the right direction. So it, there's always somebody available to help. Oh, nice. Yeah. I saw that. Yeah. Video cards and Macs. Uh, yeah, it's a, kind of a... It's crazy. Magic. Yeah. I want to thank Cashfly, C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y.com, for providing all the bandwidth to get the show from us to you the Podcast Marketplace, of course, all our sponsors. I want to thank, and that includes Gazelle at gazelle.com, iMazing at uh, iMazing.com, Smile at smilesoftware.com, Squarespace at squarespace.com slash MGG, Otherworld Computing at maxsales.com, Barebones Software at barebones.com, and, of course, our three sponsors from the show, uh, Smile Software, which I already mentioned, PDF Pen 8, Casper at casper.com slash MGG and Atlassian makers of Bitbucket, Jira and more at Atlassian.com. And of course, thanks to all of you. Thanks to our premium listeners, Tim and Bob, Anthony. Have a good week, folks. Spend your money wisely. Know that uh, a week from tomorrow, is Matt Geekab's 11th anniversary and uh, gosh is there anything else we need to tell him John? Hmm I don't think so okay well I guess we just leave it at that whoa don't get caught
0: made up